Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. This week, we're going to be talking with Professor Megan Finn about her new book, Documenting Aftermath. Information Infrastructures in the Wake of Disasters, out in 2018 by MIT Press. Documenting Aftermath is a fascinating examination of how information infrastructures shape the ways that we know and learn about disasters. Finn uses three historical case studies, major earthquakes in Northern California in 1868, 1906 and 1989 to reflect upon the development of private and public information services and how these succeed and fail to inform local and distant audiences about disaster realities. This is a very timely book, for as global warming promises more frequent catastrophes, social media and government information systems increasingly dictate how information moves. More than ever, it is necessary to question this arrangement and the oversights, inequalities, and possibilities for abuse of power therein. Thus, I am very happy to be Okay, so Professor Megan Finn, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much. It's great to have you here. Uh, So to begin talking about your book, Documenting Aftermath, I'd like to know a little bit about where this idea came from and and the genesis of the project. Sure. Um, I guess uh, these projects always have a short story and a long story. Um, And so the the short story is, um, like many folks after Hurricane Katrina, I was um, pretty like shocked and horrified by what happened and um, was beginning my grad school career and just started reading all of the reports generated by the government and nonprofits and other academics um, coming out after afterwards and was um, pretty interested in the role that information was playing rhetorically in a lot of these reports. Um, it was this sort of boogeyman that was blamed for uh, the poor response often. Um, and yeah, it sort of caused me to ask a lot of questions about what the role of information was, um, 
in, in disaster response. And of course, I was living in Berkeley, California at the time, which is a place where hazards and risk um, and disasters are well known. And so I decided to turn my attention to thinking about earthquakes in that area. Um, and of course, you know, the longer story involves, uh, you know, many, many grad seminars and lots of people that I was thinking with at the time who, um, particularly Paul Duguid and, um, who's, uh, thinks about histories of information. So that, that sort of turned my attention, um, uh, to the more historical cases. Um, but also thinking with people like, uh, Jean Lee, who's uh, an amazing ethnographer who's in the geography department. Um, at Berkeley and was teaching all of, you know, all these classes thinking about practice. And so starting to think about, okay, what does information practice look like? And there are lots of, um, sort of more complex, uh, ways in which the, my specific orientation to the project developed. But yeah, it was, it was really born out of, um, concerns after Katrina and, um, you know, a trip that I took down there with um, journalism students to about a year after the hurricane to document what had happened um, and sort of thinking with them about um, about how to do that work and what that would look like in the Bay Area. Yeah. Can you describe just a little bit about what you observed about the structure of information in New Orleans during and after Hurricane Katrina? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, briefly, again, this was not... Um, it, was not and did not end up being the sort of focus of my um, of my work, but um, yeah, I mean, one thing that was very striking was particularly in the federal reports around Hurricane Katrina. Um, there was this um, sort of constant theme that people did not have the information that they needed to be making decisions, um, and you know, and various entities were sort of blamed for that. Um, the media, of course. Um, you know, faulty communications networks. Um, but yeah, this is ended up being the sort of source of, um, real angst for particularly the federal government, um, in my reading of things. And then, of course, you get to, um, New Orleans where, you know, I was with journalists and hear stories about, um, how people survived the hurricane and it, it's very different than what was, um, what was heard on the federal level and, and through the media. Um, and sort of simultaneously, there was a lot of, you know, this, and again, it's like 2005 and the internet is still feeling a little bit new or sort of like a decade or so into having the World Wide Web. Um, there were some really interesting experiments going on where people were collecting the names of um, people who had survived the hurricane and posting them on various websites. And there were some cool efforts to try to come up with standards to describe people and, um, centralize these lists together. Um, so there, anyway, so there's sort of some interesting emerging practices around, um, the web and, and how it could be used in these spaces and also this sort of simultaneous um, blaming of the incredibly poor federal disaster response on lack of information. Um, so those sort of two trends struck me as yeah. very interesting. Yeah. So, so as you started to shape up your project, then you you decided to take a historical look. And here, in documenting aftermath, we have uh, three earthquakes in in Northern California of eighteen sixty eight, nineteen oh six, and 
1989. Uh, how did you choose uh, these particular events to look at? And, uh, and what does a historical um, perspective bring to these questions about uh, what uh, information, um, how information travels in the wake of disaster? Yeah. Um, so, though, let's see. So, um, initially, um, I did actually a lot of work on Southern California as well, and that ended up being published in articles and work outside of the book. Um, I decided to focus on Northern California and this sort of paradigmatic um, uh, earthquakes in, that had occurred in that space. Um, in part because, of course, I was living there and had access to um, easy access to a lot of the archival documents I wanted to focus on um, within the region. Um, but also because um, Northern California, um, had, you know, in sort of pe- the public imagination um, was this space of, you know, seismic activity and danger. Um, no, you know, that was sort of very interesting to me. So there's like some real pragmatic reasons to focus on Northern California. Um, but also, um, but also is, you know, sort of an easy fit into the public imagination of what it matters and, you know, what it feels like to live with earthquakes. Um, as far as taking a historical turn and, you know, I sit in this unusual interdisciplinary department, um, that's like has its roots in library and information sciences. Um, so, you know, doing historical work is not um, typical, I guess, um, in this space, although there's a lot of really great historians working in these information school programs. Um, so, you know, it was partially influenced by the fact that I, I wanted to work on disasters affecting my community. Um, and I wanted to focus on people's actual practices rather than sort of imaginations of what might happen, which were sort of consistent contained in disaster response plans, and that sort of naturally re- required um, a historical lens. Um, I also was working with um, Paul Duguid very closely um, throughout my dissertation work, and um, you know he was teaching this really wonderful class at Berkeley called the History of Information, which I TA'd and you know taught in the summer period, um, and. Um, you know, that really kind of piqued my interest in um, um, sort of questioning a lot of the claims throughout the sort of utopian um, 2000s, uh, the, a lot of claims around, you know, how the Internet was changing our lives and this has never happened before. And, you know, all of these sort of claims that we hear um, and wanting to look to the past to say, hey, you know, are these claims correct? <laughs> um, and, you know, as in a sort of very instrumental way, but then also, um, you know, this interest in institutions and how institutions shape these, shape information practices, um, and looking towards a comparative historical lens as a way of, um, you know, understanding what's going on today. Um, and also, you know, understanding sort of how power and this various arrangements of institutions um, shape knowledge and knowledge practices after disasters. Um, it's sort of a longish answer, but yeah. Well, yeah. well, and so just leading off that last thing you were saying, and, yeah. and a large part of this book is about how these systems and these infrastructures create uh, what you call like earthquake publics. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's, what does that mean to talk about a public, an earthquake public like this? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the big arguments of the book is that these public information infrastructures bring these earthquake publics into being. Um, and, you know, I guess my, my interest in talking about them both with the lens of public information infrastructures, you know, and I'm, I'm drawing heavily from, um, science and technology studies work about, um, information infrastructures in order to sort of create this conceptual apparatus, um, uh, is to sort of think about how our understandings of, imp- of information infrastructures as a sort of, you know, these hetero- 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 heterogeneous networks, um, uh, of technologies and institutions and peoples and practices and, you know, the physical earth around us, um, uh, how to think about, you know, these theories that had been primarily utilized within the STS space to study scientific practice, um, how that would be useful to understand, um, publics, um, and sort of non-experts and, you know, sort of different arrangements of people. Um, so that was sort of how I got interested in thinking about publics is through this conceptual, um, Kind of rethinking of um, of information infrastructures. Um, yeah, sorry. Sure. So uh, you know, it, one of the advantages of taking this historical perspective at, of towards these questions is uh, how it denaturalizes us from what we expect to see around yeah. us. Uh, you know, the role of the government, especially in, in shaping information about disasters, is so large now and um sometimes it's even forget it's hard to remember there was a time before social media um can you let's go back to 1868 then so how did people find out about this earthquake and um what were the structures that shaped the way that information moved yeah so i and yeah 1868 was an important case for me because it was this time before there was a formalized disaster response and um you know federal uh involvement you know national government involvement in california was um pretty minimal at this point um as compared to in the later earthquakes um so in 1868 you know um a lot of there were telegraphic um, infrastructures in place. Um, however, they were fairly new. Um, the cross-continental telegraph um, was really, um, again, sort of fairly new, less than you know a couple years old. And um, and the telegraphic infrastructure was primarily for business use. It wasn't for everyday people to be, you know, communicating with mom and dad back home. Um, it was far too expensive and, and, you know, priced very specifically so businesses could use it for their work. Um, and so most, most people were communicating with their families with, you know, letters and, um, and again, there's, you know, this is only two decades after, um, the revision of a lot of the, um, postal pricing law, uh, laws and regulations. Um, so, you know, it become cheaper for, middle-class people to send letters, um, back home, um, you know, fairly, fairly recently. Um, so that, so that's sort of the main, you know, and of course newspapers within, um, specific geographic spaces, um, are publishing both letters and telegraphs. And, and these are sort of the main organs of, um, 
of these earthquake publics at this point. Um, one thing that I got super interested in in the in this case, um, you know, and, and again, we you know sort of situating this book in these cases within the larger histories of like newspaper um, norms, right? This is 1868, so again, it's before the emergence of um, this sort of uh, objective journalism practices that we, um, you know, might think of in, in the later earthquakes. Um, and, you know, at this point, um, the sort of rise in newspapers in California has been astronomical. Um, there's, you know, new, new newspapers are sort of coming on the scene and dying at a very um, regular rate during the 1850s and 1860s. Um, and, you know, anybody can kind of, you know, not anybody, but, uh, you know, many, many people are sort of getting their hands on a printing press and maybe printing a few issues of a newspaper and seeing if it works out and seeing if it sticks. Um, so you have these newspapers that are um, telling the story of what happened in their regional spaces and, of course, relying on the telegraph to learn about what's happened around the state, um, you know, but also telling stories that, um, you know, serve their ends. Um, be they, you know, the sort of pro-business bias of some of the San Francisco newspapers or what's, you know, more sensationalizing papers that are, that are just aiming to sell, um, or, you know, maybe really serving the sort of very small communities, um, communities in their interest. Um, so you get in these sort of very, I, I think sort of the contemporary lens of misinformation is kind of fun to think through in this 1868 case where there are these sort of very intense debates where, you know, newspapers are accusing each other of lying about the damage in different areas. And there's this sort of interest in not being the area that was the most affected by the earthquake um, and saying, oh, you know, the damage was worse over there. Um, you know, this is in part for commercial interests that people don't want to, you know, they want to remain a space that's safe for investment of Eastern dollars and a safe place for immigrants to be coming to and, um, and, you know, laboring there. Um, so there's sort of these local competitions between the newspapers telling the stories. And, you know, at the same time, you have, of course, a, a physical earthquake has occurred and there's real damage done to the local papers and, and the telegraph networks and just sort of interesting ways in which the damage to these, um, you know, newspaper offices or telegraphic networks, the damage itself becomes a sort of interesting source with which to interpret what has happened, um, what has happened in, in different places. So, um, and, and, you know, the sort of damage in some sense allows for this um, spread of rumor or misinformation or whatever you want to call it, um, uh, uh, because it allows people to sort of fill in with their imaginations when they can't get in touch with a the place, then, oh, it must have been, you know, really bad. Or if they're they're not hearing back on telegrams that they're sending, it must be really bad. So, um, yeah, so sort of this really interesting, um, uh, very robust, um, you know, space of information sharing, but with very different means than, than we have today. Um, sure. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things that comes up, uh, you know, right from this chapter, but also from the others is that the disasters remind us of the materiality of these systems of yeah. communication that that are so often um, invisible to us. And one of the things that you write um, in each of these chapters, but 
specifically this one is about how these reinforce certain inequalities and um, and, and in the wake of disasters, it's it's those with the access to the capital to fix these systems that are able to uh, rebound most quickly. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so in 1868 and then um, much more so in the 1906 chapter, I'm looking, so, you know, 1906 is like the big earthquake, um, uh, you know, that looms large in the sort of California imagination and, of course, um for those who are familiar with the story, the earthquake breaks a lot of the water mains in the city. And after this huge earthquake, fires start that end up burning for four days and burn down half of the city. Um, and, you know, half of San Francisco's population is displaced. So this is like the big, um, the big earthquake. Um, yeah. And, um, and certainly, um, you know, the news, major newspapers in San Francisco burned to the ground in the 1906 earthquake. Um, uh, you know, uh, most of the telegraphic infrastructure in downtown San Francisco, which is this, you know, uh, busy business, West Coast business metropolis at this point, um, burned down. Um, and it, I mean, it's fairly remarkable sort of how quickly um, people are able to um sort of re to, to continue their work practices, even with this absolutely destroyed physical infrastructure, um, in order to sort of re keep reproducing, um, this information order, uh, and again, these sort of dominant institutions with deep pockets are the ones that can pay employees to, um, to come to work the day after an earthquake, um, and to, uh, to sort of keep working to remake this infrastructure into something that's you know, quote unquote working, um, even even when much of it has been destroyed. So yeah, in 1868, um, that this is also true. Um, in 1906, the sort of particular power structures um, and you know relations of power that are involved in producing this information order. Um, are very, very clear. And I, I mean, I think it's almost sort of astonishing in some sense that um, these major newspapers are able to put out, you know, after having their entire buildings burned to the ground, probably the residences of uh, most of their reporters and staff are destroyed. They're able to put out a paper the next day. Um, I, it's just sort of incredible. Um, but yeah, these really deep pocketed institutions are able to recover quickly. Um, despite the destruction of these physical, um, the sort of physical manifestations of these public information infrastructures, um, the work practices of employees, how people organize, how people organize their work, um, uh, are really retained and maintained, um, despite all of that. Yeah, I want to pick up on something you just said, which is that after disasters, we see not so much efforts at creating new models or networks or technologies of communication, but rather energies are focused on rebuilding what was. Uh, I suppose in a way this is disappointing. We, I think many of us would like to, to think that in the wake of uh, such destruction, structural inequalities and inadequacies yeah. could be uh, corrected for and fixed. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and that is in part, um, I mean, that's sort of true to my experience with the documents that I was working with. Um, but um, that, you know, I think that is in part, um, I guess, trying to um, 
deal with a lot of these narratives that imagine that these moments of intense destruction can be ones, um, you know, where, you know, where new possibilities, um, can crop up. And, uh, you know, my argument, which is, um, you know, been made by others, um, although, you know, I'm trying to be sort of unique making it in this, the information space is that, um, it is, um, it often actually reinforces, uh, the, the sort of strength of those who are already dominant, who are already in power, um, because they are the ones that are able to recover most easily. Um, and they're the ones who are able to sort of build back, um, where, you know, low resource organizations, low resource people are the most dramatically affected. They don't have other resources often to fall back on. Um, and they are sort of at the mercy of these, you know, state welfare programs and, and other philanthropic um projects um so yeah so it, it absolutely sort of reinforces a particular order having said that that's also really inscribed in the way we do our disaster planning in the u.s um our plans are very much to restore what was there before um it's the plans are not to sort of like let's rethink how power is distributed in this city after um after an earthquake, right? It's very much to re- restore things to what it was before. Um, so that's that's sort of very much um, part of the disaster plans today. And you know, I have colleagues in the disaster management space who really have been arguing, you know, folks in geography in particular have been arguing for a long time that we need to really rethink that orientation um, because a lot of our sort of current programs and plans are great for restoring the middle class to being the middle class, but um, really don't do much for the resource folks. Um, And that we actually should have a renewed focus on sort of equity and equality and thinking through our disaster planning projects today. Well, so to go back to uh, 1906, two two things that are are present there that that weren't beforehand, um, or at least so much, was the Red Cross and then a, a much stronger presence by the government. How did this change the way information moved? Yeah. So, I mean, um, the focus of my 1906 chapter and, you know, all of these chapters, I had to sort of whittle down to some focus because there's infinite things that you can talk about. So the 1906 chapter, I'm really trying to understand how people found each other and after this earthquake displaced so many people, so it's, you know, 200,000 people, half the population of San Francisco, the biggest city on the West Coast at that time. So the project in the 1906 chapter is to understand how that happened. Um, and to the extent that the federal government and the Red Cross played a role in this sort of accounting for people and accounting for what happened, um, you know, the federal government, um, you know, had a presence in a particularly large military presence in San Francisco at the time. Um, and, um, you sort of see the, and, and there's a, a lot that's, uh, written about whether there was martial law in San Francisco after, after the earthquake or, um, or not. And, um, I don't sort of deal with that specifically in the book, but, um, but you do see the presence of many of these generals and others who are, um, heavily involved in organizing the federal disaster response at the time. Um, the Red Cross had a, you know, sort of like a quasi governmental organization with strong relations to the Department of War at the time. 
Um, so a lot of the response that you see in San Francisco is sort of largely run through the military. Um, the, the sort of federal response is largely run through the military um, and the Department of War, vis-a-vis the Red Cross. Um, so with regards to this problem of how, you know, how did people find each other and account for what had happened, um, you know, the Red Cross is very instrumental in thinking about how to provide relief to Amer- to the San Franciscans who were affected by the earthquake. Um, and my focus is really on thinking about how they basically counted um, all of these people who were displaced. Um, my, you know, my argument is, so there's been some really nice work in this field recently um, by Marion Moser Jones, who wrote a history of the, who's written the history of the Red Cross and um, Andrea Davies, who's um, done a really nice book called Saving San Francisco, which is about um, San Franciscans and particularly sort of poor San Franciscans after the 1906 earthquake and their experiences in relief camps. So my work is really trying to sort of build on um, on the, the nice work that they've already done with this focus on the informational activities of the Red Cross. So, um, so let's see, I thought a lot about how um, the leader of the Red Cross at that time, uh, or sorry, not the leader of the response of the Red Cross in San Francisco, um, this fellow Divine, um, uh, how he collaborated with a Berkeley business professor named Carl Copping Flynn um, on creating a registration system. Um, And this was based on um, Divine's study of the 1871 Chicago fires. Um, and they devised a system where they sort of subdivided the city. And again, you can sort of, uh, so, 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 sorry, so Plen had experience um, directing the census in the Bay Area. Um, and so he, he was sort of very used to this project of, um, of counting uh, San Franciscans. And the history of the 1900 census is, is quite interesting because he's um, sort of very dedicated to counting every single person um, and he, you know, even to the point of um, uh, putting census um, census counters outside of boarding houses around San Francisco, where sort of transient migrant workers uh, were living, in order to try to force them to be counted, um, and um, you know, sending um, sending census um, census counters into Chinatown at the time, um, and trying to count all of the folks there. Um, Chinatown is, is, was quarantined at this point. Um, so anyway, so he's got this history of trying to really be able to count every single person in the Bay Area and using somewhat extreme tactics to do it. Um, so we have Plen, um, with his history of census work and Divine with his history of charity work and particularly studying the Chicago fires, getting together to create this registration system that they're determined is going to be very complete. Um, is going to find all of these people um, and make sure that everybody is, you know, only getting one portion of food and um, and you know not. Um, there was also this huge concern at the time of being pauperized that somehow by receiving aid, um, people are going to stop working and just uh, be living off of the state. Um, so there's this. So you know, with those sort of twin concerns of both knocking on everybody's door and finding everybody. And ensuring that uh, all San Franciscans are going to return to work and um, and they won't be pauperized by 
um, you know, by receiving aid after their houses have been destroyed and they, you know, they have no access to work. Um, so they just buy this system where they're going to divide the city into parts. They're going to, you know, um, send these, send these registration takers into the various parts of the city. Um, they're going to centralize the relief operations. Um, and they're basically going to figure out how to account for each person, um, and ensure that they receive their sort of fair share. Um, sure. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off well and so in that trajectory or the, this this tendency the, the bureaucratization of disaster response uh explodes hugely over the course yeah. of the 20th century um, yeah. and brings us up to, to 18 1989 uh, yeah. so what do you mean by the bureaucratization of the the information system and what does that look like yeah, yeah. So, I mean, of course, during the Cold War, we see this enormous growth of uh, civil defense. And, you know, the story is when civil defense workers don't um, end up having these nuclear attacks to work with, they start turning their attention to other ways that they can be useful. Um, and you see throughout the 50s, um, particularly in California, the civil defense um, sort of projects start turning their attention to like, okay, well, what does it mean to respond, um, to a disaster? Um, yeah. And so you see this immense reach of federal bureaucracy into local communities vis-a-vis -vis the defense, the civil defense program throughout the 1950s. Um, and so by the time 1989 rolls around and we're sort of at our third historical moment in this book, there's this very sophisticated set of disaster response plans um, from all the way at the federal level to the state level to um, counties and then to you know, very small, even towns um, have these um, very sophisticated disaster response plans in place. Um, and they're sort of um, meant to imagine what, you know, they imagine what the space is going to be like after um, these disasters occur, um, and prescribe the actions of what, you know, what county and state and local employees are supposed to be doing. Um, one thing that's important to note is, you know, so in 1950, we see the Stafford Act in the United States, and this is the first really, um, or one of, you know, so the most important really formal, formal, um, sort of set of procedures for doing this kind of, um, emergency response work. Um, and, you know, of course, it, it enables governments to spend money and use resources in different ways than they ordinarily would because of the extreme circumstances that they're dealing with. 
Um, and it also sets in motion, you sort of see this throughout, again, throughout the sort of history of the U.S., this idea that local communities are, in, are really responsible for crisis response, but if they are overwhelmed, if their resources are overwhelmed, then they may sort of call in the county. And if the county is overwhelmed, they may call in the state. And if the state is overwhelmed, they may call in the federal government. Um, and with the growth of this huge bureaucracy um, to, to, um, to provide assistance after emergencies, it also creates these interesting incentives for people to declare emergencies because um, it, um, uh, it enables um, the use of resources of sort of larger pools of resources at the state and federal level if, if they're sort of formally declared emergencies using Stafford Act. Um, so, and the, you know, and that's really important from an informational perspective because um, that means all of a sudden you have all of these other actors that are involved in, in sort of producing this emergency and producing this emergency response. And so, yeah, as you noted, throughout the Cold War, there's this huge growth um, in government activity after a disaster. And this isn't just in providing aid. It's, of course, um, really in being the authority and defining what has happened um, in the public space. Um, and so in 1989, very much in step with the, the rest of the sort of Cold War ideology around media, um, you know, the government imagines that it's going to be the producer of information, that the media is going to be this unproblematic conduit um, to the public, and that the public will be the sort of willing receivers of information that's very you know, much following um, kind of old school communication theory models. Um, and, you know, of course, this is not what happens after the 89 earthquake, um, but from an informational perspective, what's what's really bound up in this in this project is this notion of public information and public information is uh, as the sort of idealized um, again government generated um, here's what you should do now to the public um, sort of ideal um, and again in the eighty nine earthquake when we look at what actually happened it's of course far more complicated rather than generating the story themselves, the government is very much, um, you know, learning about what happened from the media and reacting based on that. Um, the media, of course, sees the government as, um, as excellent sources for what's going on, but the, you know, the state officials are mostly being informed by what the media is saying. So you have this sort of twisted um, relationship where they're kind of repeating each other over and over again. Um, one interesting thing I point out in that chapter is the um, newspaper that won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the earthquake, um, the San Jose Mercury News, um, a study um, that was undertaken of the types of sources that the San Jose Mercury News used um, showed that they relied primarily on scientists and um, sort of non-expert, non-professional disaster responder, ordinary public type people in their reporting at a disproportionate rate than other newspapers in the area. Um, so importantly, um, and this you know, becomes important as you looked at the contemporary case today, um, the, the ideas of this ideal of public information and um, sort of uh, production of uh, this authoritative account of what is gonna, and what happened after an earthquake 
really does not involve the public as a producer of information or as um, you know, people with any sort of authoritative knowledge about what's happened. Um, and a lot of the more recent work you know, in the last two decades is uh, in the disaster studies space has really underscored that the, the real, quote unquote, real first responders in a disaster are the people who are living through it. Um, uh, but that sort of insight is, is notably absent when we think about um, how the the 1989 earthquake response was imagined. Sure. Now, social media enthusiasts and techno-utopians would say that this is exactly what things like Twitter and Facebook correct for, that now we can all be our own reporters and submit our own eyewitness accounts. Uh, How do you see the way that this is preparing us for the next big earthquake? Yeah, and so I really uh, tried to explore that dichotomy between the states who sort of sees themselves as an authoritative um, voice after disasters versus this, you know, the sort of utopian, um, everybody has a voice on social media platforms. In my chapter, where I'm thinking through this, you know, my sort of more humanistic chapter, um, looking at the information order that's in place today, um, that there's this interesting dialectical relationship between those ideals. Um, but in fact, um, the state is very, also very present on social media. Um, and, um, sort of I, interestingly, um, social media does allow them to be, you know, social media is the kind of unproblematic conduit, um, that the media, you know, the media is not. Um, the media does not simply tell you exactly what government response officials want them to say, you know, they'll put them in, con- put it in context, maybe question it. Um, uh, whereas, you know, Twitter and Facebook and these other platforms really do allow um, state officials to say exactly what they want um, to the public. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, of course, the public is out there um, producing, producing stories about what happened. Um, but there are these huge, well, so let's see, two things. One is, um, that, you know, the, the social media sites in the state are, are very much intertwined despite, um, having these sort of seemingly, um, opposite, um, philosophical positions on, um, um, producing stories about what's happened. The state is using these sites, um, to broadcast their, um, their public information messages, um, and simultaneously, um, the state, and so, th- you know, this is sort of as we get into the story about today, um, the, so in 89, the state is primarily concerned with this idea of producing public information. When we get into the contemporary era, we see there's this shift in that the public is no longer imagined to be this sort of stupid passive en- entity. It is um, in, in many of the Cold War era imaginings of post-disaster response um, and they very much do see, oh, yes, they're using the social media and they are closer to what's happened oftentimes than we are. Um, and so we see this idea of situational awareness really cropping up over the last couple of decades in disaster response plans. And of course, um, social media um, starts to be um, a real source for situational awareness. And situational awareness is this idea that... Um, that you know somebody far away uh, can understand um, what's happening on the ground through, and again, 
this is sort of harkening back to the Katrina stuff that we were talking about at the beginning, you know, if they have, if only they have the right information that's, you know, processed and displayed to them um, the right way, they can make the right decisions. Um, and I'm using a lot of like scare quotes here. Um, yes, they can course. make the right decisions. And so, the, you know, the social media, these social media platforms become a real source for the, um, for these disaster responders to be able to imagine that they understand what's happening on the ground, um, and, and deploy resources accordingly. Um, you know, I think, uh, so the 89, the chapter on the 89 Loma Prieta earthquake, spent a lot of time um, thinking about how um, the dominant public information infrastructures um, really overplayed um, the damage of, of the 89 earthquake um, in affluent, mostly white areas of San Francisco um, to the detriment of some of the much more um, adversely affected um, areas of California that were closer to the epicenter of the earthquake, namely Watsonville, California, which had a population um, that included many, many non-English speaking migrant workers. Um, and that the sort of media's fascination with the spectacle of what was happening in San Francisco um, in, in this you know, sort of particular public information um, Organization, you know, organization of institutions in this uh, dominant public information infrastructure um, really privileged those accounts and ignored the accounts of um, these folks in Watsonville. Um, meanwhile, the Spanish language media and community groups that had been working with these migrant populations um, really did highlight the experiences of those people and drew it. You know, they were the first to draw attention to. The horrible damage that had occurred there, um, and um, try to argue that you know resources needed to be deployed there. Um, they were the people who um, made uh, resources, um, you know, sort of in the weeks after the the earthquake, um, were the folks that made resources available um, uh, to to non English speaking um, workers in Watsonville. Um, by translating forms um, and sort of enabling um, a sort of translation of a lot of the state projects for for these people um, who you know really did not fit into what was imagined to be somebody who would need help because they were not English speaking. Um, they lived in housing situations that were not your sort of nuclear family standard single family home. Um, situations. They were, you know, renters, they were um, multi-generational households, um, and all of these sort of non-standard, um, or sort of non-standard by the standards of the government, um, you know, ways of being uh, did not fit neatly into aid forms and, and other ways of accessing resources. Um, and so, you know, and this sort of bears a similarity to like when we think about today and, and the use of social media platforms in these in disaster response um, that we don't, you know, the, these often don't include people like the elderly, um, like people who can't afford uh, the sort of high costs of, um, you know, maintaining the internet on their phone. Um, you know, these don't include the people who are, are, you know, in the most damaged areas where cell phone towers may not work. Um, 
Uh, and so, you know, these sort of sit, the, to the extent that social media can be imagined to represent what happened um, or used to understand to be, to be the situational awareness, um, it creates a sort of huge gaping holes. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, the book is really trying to draw attention to the ways in which the configurations of, uh, again, these sort of heterogeneous networks um, really create um, massive gaps um, in, in how you can know what's going on or imagine that you know what's going on. Yeah, and, and it, there's also a, a large uh, geographic factor in this as well, as we see in the in the contrast of Hurricane Harvey in, in Texas and Hurricane Maria in, in Puerto Rico, where we were, it was so much harder to get um, on the ground information from Puerto Rico than Harvey. And, and um, this had uh, reverberations through the disaster response. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, it, just thinking about the recent wildfires in California, um, you know, you literally, you know, cell, cell phone towers were burning um, in the areas that people really needed to be able to communicate the most. Um, and, it, you know, it's very, um, very depressing. But um, when you look at the the lists of, you know, who died during the, you know, the fires, the campfire, in California, it's primarily, um, you know, elderly people, people over the age of 60. And, you know, one has to imagine that if you were to sort of reduce a lot of your disaster communication to social media tools, that the, you know, these folks aren't necessarily using them. Um, yeah. Sure. And, and so <clears throat> as we're heading into the age of, of the Anthropocene, of climate change, and disaster yeah. seems to be so much more frequent and present, uh, what do you foresee uh, developing in the next uh, few decades? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, so I've tried to sort of provide some conceptual ways to think about this in the book with this concept of event epistemology, which is really thinking about the ways information order and disasters as, you know, um, events that, you know, occur on, on the ground. Um, co-construct these possibilities for knowing. Um, yeah, I think it's really vital that we think about, um, you know, the earth and, and sort of an actant as we really think through the, the creation of, um, uh, or sort of what information orders will look like um, in the wake of climate change. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's sort of one piece that I've definitely been um, trying to think through. Um, well, and I think there's also the the matter of the the huge presence of a, a small number of very large social media platforms and their power to uh, determine and, and dictate how these are responded to. Uh, yeah, you, you, it's, it's really terrifying because yes, and I mean I think um, while FEMA and these other work, government organizations are not perfect, you know, in theory. Um, they're based in these democratic institutions that the people have some um, control over. And um, it's very troubling when public welfare projects um, sort of fall in the hands of these private institutions that, you know, that, and that, that's just not what their primary job is. And um, in the final chapters of the book, I write about projects like Facebook Safety Check, where you see Facebook sort of wrapping themselves in the the sort of cloak of doing humanitarian work 
um, by ostensibly, quote unquote, responding um, to disasters. And you see these sort of like breathless articles um, in publications such as Wired declaring that, you know, Facebook is changing the face of disaster response. And it's, it, yeah, it's absolutely terrifying um, because we have no stakes in, um, you know, how, they, how they're thinking about public welfare. Um, we have no ability to see inside of the algorithms which they're using to, so Facebook has actually created a, a new um, product since I um, completed the manuscript of the book called Disaster Maps, which are these maps that show where people who are affected by disasters are. But of course, it's through the eyes of Facebook. We don't know what kind of algorithms they're using to generate um, these these imaginings of, of um, these disaster publics. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's it's very alarming <laughs> um, for all of us. Um, I leaned heavily on this concept of calculated publics from Charlton Gillespie, um, where he talks, you know, he's sort of writing about, okay, well, what kind of publics are being generated by these social media platforms? Um, yeah, and, you know, we sort of don't know who's included. We don't know who's not included. Um, we don't know what their primary concerns are. Um, I think incredibly disturbingly, you know, Facebook allows people to run, um, to, to sort of run these, um, campaigns to, um, to get donations for people who are affected by disasters afterwards. But Facebook takes a percentage of the donations that are made. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think we should be all asking big questions about what Yeah. Well, it is a, uh, an exciting, um, uh, time to be going into and to be thinking about these questions. Yeah, yeah. So what is your next project then? Oh boy. So I have a couple projects I've been working on that um, fall out of the book um, that have been really fun collaborations for me to work on. Um, working on a project with Mike Anony at USC's Annenberg, looking at how journalists are making use of scientific data um, which has been a lot of fun. Um, I'm working with an anthropologist who um, studies you know, seismicity in Mexico um, uh, named Beth Reddy. Um, and she and I have been thinking through a lot of these issues we were just talking about um, around um, sort of media and materiality and the politics of life um, on these social media platforms. Um, I've been working with a colleague at University of Washington named Scott Miles on something we're calling seismic cultures, where we're thinking about um, what it's like for various peoples around the Pacific Rim to live with earthquakes um, and how the sort of practices and politics of living in earthquake uh, with earthquakes differs um, around the rim. And we've been doing various staging various sort of public projects around this. So we just had a booth at the Seattle Design Festival this fall that was kind of asking Seattleites what it would be like, um, you know, what, what their life is like um, living in a place with seismicity and, yeah. and asking them to think with um, some of the ideas from like Japan and Chile. And then my next big book project, um, I'm tentatively titling um, Inconvenient Data. And it's really thinking about how um, data sets about, um, uh, you know, generated by scientists using new instrumentation and new, new methods um, sort of shape and construct the places that we live in and 
the various um, institutions that make these data sets meaningful or visible or not. Um, so hmm. my sort of big, big yeah. projects I'm thinking through right now. Well, that's a, a lot on your palate and they also Yeah, yeah, exciting. it's been really fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Megan Finn, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.